Hi, I'm Naomi. And I'm Kaylee. Coming at ya from the traditional unceded territory of the Coast Salish people. And this is... Sorry. Sorry. Murder. Listener discretion is advised. Trigger warning. Obviously, murder. Um, and there will be mentions of domestic violence and sexual assault. But no gratuitous details. For this case, we are taking you right back to Vancouver Island. When the head of a missing matriarch turns up in the family's very own front yard, we wonder, was this some sort of cruel joke or a purposeful devious plan carried out by someone closest to her? For this case, the jury was presented with circumstantial evidence opposed to direct evidence. Direct evidence is direct proof of a fact, like a testimony by a witness about what the observations were that the witness saw, did, or heard. Circumstantial evidence is indirect evidence, where the court is presented indirect evidence from which one can find another fact. Lots of witness statements, lots of background history, lots of cross-referencing witness statements. The court document was quite dry, so you really have to use critical thinking with what is known and just imagine what it was like for the jurors. Let's jump in. Meet Shannon and Doug. Hello. Shannon and Doug were a couple of people who fell in love. They had both been married previously, and Shannon had a son from her first marriage. Doug had a stepdaughter from a previous relationship that did not live with him. Shannon and Doug began living together in 1986 and were married in 1988. Doug formally adopted Shannon's son, and just like that, a new family was formed. However, Shannon's family did not like Doug. Unfortunately, they felt that Shannon had a habit of finding creepy men. Or, rather, those types of men found her. Doug worked as a firefighter with the National Defense, and Shannon worked as a computer programmer with the Ministry of Transport, downtown Victoria. I would be remiss if I didn't let you know, Shannon had amazing hair. It's been referred to as a lion's mane by her friends. From the pictures of Shannon... With her voluptuous hair and bright smile, she looks like she would have had the best laugh. (laughs) I just get that impression. We'll post some pictures of Shannon on our Instagram. Did I mention Shannon and Doug's last name was Guyatt? Together, the Guyatt family moved from Langford to Colwood. So not a big move, they just went like a little bit closer to the city of Victoria. And to give you an idea of their financial situation... Doug had owned a house that he sold in order to purchase the family a new home. The court records state that Doug sold his house in Langford for $40,000. Oh my god. Can you imagine purchasing a house on Vancouver Island for that price? It's been reported by friends and family that problems in the marriage developed in the fall of 1990. Doug and Shannon had been seeing a counselor to try to help with their issues. On January 15th, 1992, Shannon told her husband that she wanted a divorce. By the end of January, she had even seen a lawyer, and on February 4th, the lawyer provided her with a draft separation agreement. The agreement was signed on March 9th, 1992. The final agreement specified that Doug would receive the first $10,000 from the sale of their home, and then the balance of the proceeds would be divided equally between Doug and Shannon. Among other things, Doug agreed to provide medical and dental insurance for Shannon and her son, and 
They provided a list of their property that they were both entitled to keep. So this was serious. It was happening. They were planning it all out. And Shannon was working on this with her lawyer. We know that the time around a separation is the most dangerous time in a relationship. It's so true. And I'm just, I'm so stuck on the fact that she attracts creepy men. So Mm -hmm. for this separation to be happening, I feel like this is like extra dangerous. Creepy men. (sighs) Creepy men. Creepy men. (sighs) However, these things take time. And Shannon was working on getting out of the relationship as soon as possible. She was making all the necessary arrangements. So she made plans to move with her son into a basement suite in her friend Diane's house. The basement suite just needed some renovations first, so Shannon was helping with those renovations. So for now, the family was still living together, and they were trying their best to keep a normal life for their son. But at work... Doug's co-workers were getting a glimpse into his life, and they could see that all was not well. One of Doug's firehall co-workers had a conversation with him at work in January of 1992. Doug said that he and Shannon were in counseling, and that she was prepared to give the marriage another six months. Doug said that he was taking Valium to relieve the stress he was feeling, And during the conversation, it was observed that Doug became very angry when speaking about his relationship. Doug complained that if they divorced, his wife, who brought nothing to the marriage, would receive $25,000 from the sale of the house, jewelry, a new car that she got, and half his pension. I mean, F that, as if she brought nothing to the table. That's such bullshit. Yeah, that's so offensive. Yeah. It's reported by multiple co-workers that Doug actually said he would rather kill his wife than see her get anything. Okay, so he's psycho. You should really never say something like that. Doug seemed to swing on this pendulum during the conversation, moving between two extremes of working for reconciliation and killing his wife. Oh my god. On April 3rd, 1992, the Gayats listed their home for sale with... Uh, Richard Sims, who was a friend and a real estate agent. Doug complained to Mr. Sims that Shannon was leaving him and he did not want her to go. Shannon had struck up correspondence recently with a man that she had dated 17 years earlier. His name was Greg. They had reunited in person recently and they were possibly rekindling some romance. So it seems she really was moving on. However, so was Doug. He had recently taken a vacation with another woman. I'm getting like really narcissistic vibes from Doug right now. Like the fact that he's upset with her, but yet he's doing exactly the same thing that she's doing. But he's just slandering her. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If not more. Yeah, he wants to keep control of her, it sounds like, but he also wants to be able to do whatever he wants. Yeah, he's, it's like the classic, like, if, you can, if I can't have you, no one can, or something like mm-hmm. that. It's not a good sign. Okay, so right now, I'm going to walk you through Shannon's day on June 17th, 1992, and also the events on June 18th. This is important, because you need to decide what happened and who is responsible based on these facts. These facts end up being all that the court has to make their decision with. So let's take a look at those activities. On Wednesday, June 17th, Shannon drove her son partway to school, and then she went to work as she usually did. 
at lunchtime, she visited a friend who worked at Eaton's, which is a clothing store. Eaton's. <laughs> Eaton's. Eaton's. <laughs> Shannon was looking for a new pair of shoes. Shannon told her friend, who was working in the store, that she was going home after work to change because her son had a baseball game, and after that, she was going out with a girlfriend. It sounds like a nice evening. She's a busy gal, very social. Yeah, it sounds like she has, like, a lot of friends. Mm-hmm. Before returning to work after her lunch hour, Shannon also visited Susie Shear, which is another clothing store in the mall. The sales clerk remembered Shannon and that she purchased a purple skirt, and she was looking for a matching blouse for the skirt. Aw, cute. Mm-hmm. She found a floral blouse and silver earrings before leaving the store. A little shopping therapy. Ooh. And then Shannon returned to work. So Diane, the friend of Shannon's, if you recall, she owned the house with the basement suite that Shannon was planning to move into. Right, yeah. That afternoon at 2 p.m., Shannon called Diane to tell her she would come over that night to work on the basement suite. So they made plans to meet up, and Shannon told Diane that she was going to go straight home after work, grab something to eat, throw a few things in the dryer, and be at Diane's by 7. We know that at about 4.05 or 4.10 p.m., Shannon called her boss. She advised him that she would not be in to work the next day because she was going to be attending an online course for work. Mm, I love those work-from-home days. Totally. Between 4.30 and 5 p.m., Shannon dropped in for a short 10-minute visit at her hairdressing-slash-tanning salon that she regularly frequented. But we don't know where Shannon went after that. A mother at the baseball game that Shannon's son was at said that she saw Shannon driving that evening at about 5 o'clock or shortly after, around the Goldstream Ocean Boulevard area, driving towards Victoria. Now, the Gayat's garage door at their house was broken. As a result, Shannon had been parking her vehicle in the driveway rather than in the garage. A neighbor said that they saw Shannon's car arrive home between 5 and 5.15, although they could not say whether or not it was Shannon driving the vehicle. Interesting. The neighbor then went out to do some shopping, and at about 5.45, they came home, and they didn't recall seeing Shannon's car at that time. At 7 o'clock p.m., another neighbor said that they had a short conversation in passing with Doug, who happened to be outside, and they didn't notice anything out of the ordinary about him. Somewhere between 5.30 and 6 p.m., a family friend called the house. Doug answered the phone and took a message for his son. So that indicates that Doug was home at that time. The guy at son was planning for Shannon to drive him to a school barbecue that afternoon. So he spent some time with friends after school, and then he came home at 4.35 to go to the barbecue. His mother wasn't there. So Doug drove him to the barbecue, and that was just before 5 p.m. So this timeline is tight. There's a lot going on between 5 and 5.30. We have sightings of Shannon driving outside of Victoria, her son coming home and leaving, the friend calling the house that puts Doug there. And then 7 o'clock rolls around, and Shannon did not show up at her friend Diane's house as they had planned. Also, at about 7 o'clock, the guy at son called home and told Doug he was ready to be picked up. Doug went to get him, and they stopped at a video store on the way home. 
They got home at about 7.30 p.m., and Shannon was still not there. Doug and the son played video games, and they went to bed at 11 p.m. So, a recap. Let's do a recap. So, Shannon went to work. She did a lot of shopping afterwards, didn't show up at her son's baseball game, although she may have been sighted driving nearby it. Um, She didn't show up to drive her son to his barbecue, didn't show up to Diane's house, but her car was home, and then all of a sudden it wasn't. All the while, Doug is acting totally cool. Yes, that's right. So far, nothing was screaming foul play, although it was unusual for Shannon not to follow through with her plans, especially regarding her son. Now let's move on to Thursday, June 18th, 1992. At 5.30 a.m., a neighbor who lived actually a few blocks away, so a distant neighbor, looked out his window and noticed a red car parked just outside of his driveway. He was waiting for guests to arrive. Kind of weird at 5.30 a.m., but whatever. So he actually went outside to look and see who was in the car. The vehicle was a red Firebird, just like the one owned by Shannon. He did not remember seeing it there the evening before, although he agreed that his memory could have been mistaken, but he was pretty darn sure that it wasn't there at 11 p.m. when he had gone to bed. The car was empty. Weird. At 8.35 a.m. on June 18th, the computer course that Shannon had signed up for started. They wondered where she was, and one of Shannon's co-workers called her house sometime between 8.30 and 9.30 a.m. She spoke to their son about the mother's whereabouts, and she could hear Doug in the background saying, Tell him Shannon already left for work. The son did not recall this happening, that Shannon had been there and left for work. He didn't even know that she came home. But Doug insisted that she had. Later, on June 18th, another friend of Shannon's called the house. This gal pal made plans to meet Shannon for lunch. Doug answered the phone and simply said that Shannon was not around. He explained to the friend that he had waited until midnight the night before and that Shannon didn't even come home. Doug stated, Maybe Shannon is doing to me what I did to her last month, insinuating that she might have temporarily left him. Oh my god, it's like, ugh, he's just blaming her for everything. Mm -hmm. The realtor, Mr. Sims, came over to the Guyatt residence at about 12.30pm. He had an offer on the house that he wanted to share with them. When he arrived, Doug was pacing as he was talking on the phone. Doug told Mr. Sims that his wife had not come home the night before. His speech was broken, his eyes seemed puffy, and it seemed like his nerves were on edge, Mr. Sims said. Okay, well, like, that sounds legit. Mm-hmm. So at that time, Shannon was reported missing, and the police jumped on the case. Well, luck that's lucky, because it doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. They started getting statements from all of Shannon's friends and family, and they seized the red car that was parked a few blocks away from their home. They confirmed it was Shannon's car, but they didn't find any clues inside to help them. Why was the car stashed a few blocks away? Why did her car move in the middle of the night? Good questions. We might get a little more insight with the following testimonies. By June 19th, so the following day, the police had clued in that Shannon had a love interest. They tracked down Greg and they interviewed him as a person of interest. Yes, they confirmed Greg and Shannon had been rekindling their love from 17 years earlier. And they had met in person shortly before she disappeared. But 
Greg denied actually having an affair with Shannon. At one point during the interview, he did say something kind of odd. He told the police, Do you want my gut feeling? She's laying in a ditch somewhere dead. <gasps> what a freak. Oh my god, Shannon really attracts the weirdest people. Who says that so casually? It's dark. Not to hold out any hope, but I guess that's his gut feeling. Weird. However, his alibi checked out, and he was cleared as a suspect. During this time, everyone was hoping Shannon would show up at any moment. But she didn't, and the days crawled by. Oh, her poor son. Mm -hmm. So sad. Yeah. A couple days later, on June 20th, Mr. Sims, the realtor, showed up again at the Guyatt house with a prospective buyer to show them the house. Afterwards, he chatted with Doug, and Doug confided in him, saying that he could not afford to pay the mortgage and also eat. It was all too much. He needed money. Mr. Sims inquired whether Doug had life insurance for Shannon on the mortgage. However, Mr. Sims also told Doug that even if he did have that, he wouldn't be able to collect the insurance for seven years. Weird. Seven years? Yeah, they discussed how... Well, it was Mr. Sims' understanding that a person had to be missing for seven years before they could be legally declared dead. However, he would get the insurance right away if a body were to turn up. Oh. But in the meantime, Mr. Sims suggested that the best thing to do would be for Doug to just call the bank and let them know that he was going to be late making his payments. Mr. Sims felt like Doug didn't really even entertain the idea of life insurance. I don't know exactly what that means. Like, was Doug hesitant to consider it? Was he hoping Shannon would return? Or was he just trying to play it cool? Yes, so many questions. Mr. Sims was leaving the house when he noticed paper, garbage, and pop cans laying in the ditch in front of the Guyatt's home. He told Doug to clean up the ditch and clean up the lawn. I mean, they're trying to sell the house, right? So... What Mr. Sims saw as for garbage was some, some paper, pieces of garbage, some pop cans in the ditch. I'd like to specify that he did not see a white garbage bag in the ditch. Okay, he didn't see a white garbage bag. That's right. On June 21st, an officer, Constable Stewart, was going through the process of putting Shannon into the computer system as a missing person. He called Doug and inquired who Shannon's dentist and doctor were. Why? Constable Stewart told Doug that if the police found a body, they would identify it through dental charts. The next evening on June 22nd, a neighbor of the Guyats returned home from a trip to Grand Prairie, and they got in at about 1, and they got in at about 1 a.m. So the neighbor she spoke with her husband for a short time, and then she got ready for bed. As she was turning out the lights in the living room, she recognized Doug, driving slowly in a vehicle with no lights on. Creepy. He was just coasting down the driveway with the engine off. She observed the vehicle roll to the end of the road, whereupon the vehicle was started up again, and the headlights turned on. Doug drove off. But, then he returned about 10 or 15 minutes later. At that point, the neighbor looked up the window to investigate some banging and clanging noises coming from uh, the area of Doug's garage. Oh, here it goes. Banging and clanging. The neighbor could hear a scraping sound, like something being dragged along concrete. 
Ew, like a body. Well, I guess that wouldn't sound scrapey. Well, here's the day that would change everything. Firstly, we've kind of left the guy at Sun nameless on purpose in all of this. Um, but for your information, he's been staying at his grandparents' house and at friends' houses since his mother disappeared. He hasn't really gone home. Oy. But on this day, Saturday, June 28th, Doug went to pick him up. They got some McDonald's for lunch, and then they arrived home shortly after 12 noon. Doug spoke to a neighbor outside for a few moments, and then Doug and his son went inside the house. Then Doug came back out with a black garbage bag to clean up that mess in the front yard. He was heard saying, Goddamn kids and their garbage. <laughs> Doug. Doug began picking up garbage in his front yard and ditch. Suddenly, he kneeled down, crouched over, and began to scream. He made a loud, hyperventilating cry. He did not pick anything up, but he continued to stare into the ditch. He made no answer when the neighbor asked him what was wrong. She immediately called 911. Oh my god. The son was inside on the telephone talking to a friend when he heard his father screaming outside. He looked out the window and saw his father grabbing at the grass and yelling. Whoa. Shortly after that, the police arrived. Doug directed them to a white garbage bag in the ditch. Inside the bag was the severed head of Shannon. <gasps> so the head went off to be inspected. Oh my god, just a head. Just a head. You like the head went off to be inspected. Yes, just a head in a bag. Oh my god. A pathologist examined Shannon's head at the Victoria General Hospital. They made a positive ID through her dental records. The hair on her head, her magnificent hair, had been cut off in a haphazard fashion. Oy. What remained was short hair, less than two inches long, and then even shorter in some areas. Oh my god, that's so creepy. Mm-hmm. The hair was moist. It was kind of dirty and messy. There was grass and dirt and leaves in the bag around the head, as well as some wet newspaper. Ew. The head had been severed from the body after death by multiple strokes of a knife cutting from under the jaw at the front to the spine. <sighs> Gross. I imagine that when you like decapitate someone, you really have to like saw. Oh, it wouldn't be easy. Ew. No. There was some fracturing of the jawbone, um, like near the ear that had occurred after death that could have been from dropping the head. Ew, oh my god. Yeah, it's awful. There was no evidence of trauma on the head um, that seemed to be like from prior to death. So because of that, the pathologist concluded that the cause of death was probably related to another part of the body that they didn't have available. Yeah, where's the body? Where's the body? That's going to be my biggest question, but we'll get to that. Based on the ambient temperature of 20 degrees Celsius at that time, the pathologist guessed uh, that also from the, from the discoloration and breakdown of the tissues that death had occurred maybe three to five days earlier, putting the time of death perhaps at June 23rd or even 25th. However, a forensic entomologist also looked at the development of fly larvae found on the head. 
and based on the temperature, guessed that the time of death had occurred no later than June 20th. So this was also based on temperature, and if the body had been perhaps somewhere with a cooler temperature, the fly larvae could have been laid on June 18th. Gross. So like, it, like it could have been in the garage. Yeah, exactly. If it was somewhere, that would have been like a, maybe a cooler spot. Could you freaking imagine having a dead body for like, what, three, four days and then sawing off the head? No. Ugh. I can't imagine having a dead body, obviously, but I can't <laughs> imagine going back to get ahead. Yeah. All this investigating was going on, and the police did not know who would do this to Shannon. I'm sure they suspected Doug, but as we know, these things take time. In fact, a search warrant for the guy at home was not even carried out until a year later. What was Doug doing during this time? Well, for one thing, he did some interviews with the news. Um, If you actually want to have a look at that, it's on YouTube. It's kind of interesting to hear him speak about his wife's disappearance. Was he, like, sad? Was he... Yeah. Yeah, he seemed, like, downtrodden. (laughs) He wasn't, um, hard to remember. I'll have to look at it. Yeah, he didn't seem, like, super broken up. He was just, seemed like, kind of confused. I think the interview might have been from before the head turned up. Oh, okay. Yeah. Naomi, can you please walk us through the events of the year following Shannon's death? Yes. Okay. So, the events um, of the year following Shannon's death. Um, So, Doug called the bank about his mortgage promptly after Shannon's death on June 30th. He informed the bank of his situation and that his payment was due on the coming Friday and he did not have sufficient funds to cover it. The assistant manager of the bank advised him not to worry because once they received notification of a death, a block would be put on the mortgage. And when the death certificate became available, it would be sent to the insurance company to commence the claim. So that was a relief for Doug. They had Shannon's remains and they had dental record and the insurance coverage would now kick in. So it seems Doug had to lay low for a couple of months. Well, he didn't have to. He just did lay low for a couple of months. And then in October of 1992, he applied for a passport. Okay. So later in the year, in December 18th of the same year, Doug spoke to a librarian at the Colwood Library saying he wanted some information about extradition treaties. He told the librarian that he was looking for a friend who would be in another country, and it would probably be a country that didn't have extradition treaties within Canada. Looking for a friend. Wink, wink. Looking for a friend. (laughs) The librarian gave Mr. Guyot a reference request to fill out. He wrote on it, I wish to know which countries have and which countries don't have extradition treaties with Canada and the USA. So sus. Yeah, like how dumb do you have to be? (laughs) So let's fast forward a bit. Doug's son from a former marriage was visiting in December of 1992 when he asked his father if he could borrow $15 to $20. He said his father showed him some money that he had in a sock in a drawer, which was about $5,000. Doug told his son that the money was for leaving the country. Oh. What the fuck? This might be a good time to inform you that Doug had previously been accused of sexually assaulting a stepdaughter. So at this time, he was basically telling his son if the police ever come after him for the sexual abuse or for Shannon's death, he had a plan to flee the country. 
craziness. Although Doug had not been charged, people had their suspicions about him. Coworkers noticed that Doug's demeanor changed from time to time, and he did speak of taking his share of the proceeds from Shannon's death and buying a sailboat and sailing away. Coworkers reported these statements to police, and then one day, Doug looked at his coworker Billy with a sideways smile and said, I'm not that crazy, Billy. I didn't do it. At that point, Billy knew that Doug found out he had made reports to the police. The police were watching Doug, and finally, on June 2, 1993, they executed a search warrant on the guy at home. They kept an eye on Doug in case he tried to flee at this time, but he did not. At this time, Doug was charged with the murder of his wife, but would they discover the evidence to convict? Let's look at what they found in the house. So sure, unfortunately, they did not find anything particularly useful in the house. I thought they could at least find, like, bits of hair if it had been cut, blood, anything. There was no smoking gun at all. Yeah, weird. Weird. Well, okay, so let's just, let's just say that he killed her, and he killed the way that he murdered her was to do something with her body, not her head. But then he decapitated her, like he cut her, he sawed her head off. I don't think there'd be that much of a mess after the bodies, like, because wouldn't the the blood be coagulated? Uh, I don't know. I think the head was cut off, like, outdoors somewhere because of the dirt and leaves on the head. Oh, true, 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 true. Okay. So, we do know that an attempt was made to match the newspaper Shannon's head was wrapped in to a paper that was seized from the house, but there was no match. They also tried to match the garbage bag Shannon's head was found in with the bags found in Doug's house, and that was more promising. There's quite a bit of information solely about the bags in the court documents. Basically, it was inconclusive, but was more in favor of the bag Shannon's head in was matching the bags in the Guyatt house. The brand of bags, Glad, happened to be the only bag company that embossed numbers on their bags. That's promising. Yeah, yeah. But they aren't always packaged in order together. The bags that were inside the guide house and the bag that Shannon's head was in were manufactured within five minutes of each other. But it could not be proved that they came from the same package of bags because they were always packaged randomly. This was a big part of the trial to convict Doug, but it did not lead to anything conclusive. The guy at son testified in the trial. He described how his parents had not got along too well during the marriage, that they were arguing, and that there had been slaps. Damn. When the son last saw his mother, he thought she had a red bag with her at the time, and the red bag was later recovered from the guy at house, which points to her having made it home on June 17th. Hmm. The woman who allegedly saw Shannon drive by the baseball game driving towards Victoria ended up uh, retracting her statement. At trial, she said the reason she had re recanted is because she felt harassed by the police and their questioning. Mr. Sims testified that as the realtor for the guy at home, he had taken a key from the house on June 17th to June 28th. He was not restricted access to the house. That's interesting. Mr. Sims testified that as the realtor for the guy at home, he had a key to the house from June 17th to June 28th. He was not restricted access to the house. And if Doug committed the murder within that time frame, just how can there be nothing to hide? Like, did the crime take place somewhere else? 
Where was the body kept? These questions just rage in my mind. Those are, those are really good questions. Um, okay, so we know Shannon went shopping on June 17th and that she purchased some items. All her cute little like silver earrings and purple skirt. If these items were found in her home, it would prove that she had made it home before disappearing. Unfortunately, the items could not be confirmed to be in her home. Uh, there's still one person left to hear from, though, and that's Doug. Doug and the slugs. What does Doug say happened? Well, basically, he said everything we already know. He added some extra excuses for not realizing that his wife didn't come home at first and for researching countries without extradition treaties. He didn't bring anything new to the table. With the sexual assault of his stepdaughter and some incriminating statements, he was looking like a pretty bad character. Yeah, and why was he so adamant that morning to tell people that Shannon had already left for work? Yeah, exactly. <sighs> Interestingly, also noted in the court documents, um, remember Mr. Yebes from episode four? Mr. Yebes! <laughs> the lawyers defending Doug mentioned that case among other wrongful conviction cases because the defense were arguing that the case against Doug was simply too circumstantial and that they were at risk of convicting an innocent person like what happened to Mr. Yebes. Yeah, crazy. And that's basically all the evidence. So based on that, what would you decide if you were a juror? What would I decide? I mean, my spotty senses are telling me that Doug is in fact a psychopath. And I think like going back to the beginning of this like the fact that Shannon attracted creepy men a fact the fact that Greg um just was like very laissez-faire about the fact that she probably was in a ditch dead somewhere I don't know I definitely think that Doug did it yeah I can see that Doug has motive I mean the crown clearly outlined that in the trial with his money issues and needing the insurance and he was so suspicious, like with his late night cruises and researching extradition treaties. His character was not great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just like, like I keep saying, I'm just really confused about the death and like where would the body be? Where would he have taken her to that he could just go back? If he did this, I hate to say it, he's a good criminal yeah. because he was cool as a cucumber right like he would have been it would have been immediately following a death he's talking to people yeah and his um reaction to finding her head like that deserves like an academy award if that was yeah exactly um cutting off the hair that was another thing Ew. that stood out to me because that's very dehumanizing it's very um like belittling kind of like, like screw your hair you know like trying to take it away from her it's her trademark yeah or maybe did he want to make her unrecognizable yeah, yeah. I feel like those are all really, really good, strong points. Like like you said, the fact that he had motive, that he was acting suspicious with the hair. Because her hair was her trademark and because it was so beautiful, it, it feels like someone who would cut her hair off is like someone who knows her well. Yeah, exactly. It's it's all puzzling to me. But then also, if if he did do it, um, why did he plan to find the head right after he brought the son home? That's really messed up. And then if he didn't do it, oh, how convenient is that, that he has the conversations that he needs dental records, he needs a body for the money, and then, oh, there's the head delivered to my front yeah, yard. Yeah, it's just so weird because, okay, so she, that wasn't how she died, like there was harm done to her body, so the fact that he was just like, well, then she doesn't have a body, we'll just produce the head. It leaves me with more questions than anything else, but 
so, so the prosecution made their case that Doug killed his wife in order to cash in on the insurance. And ultimately, Douglas Skyatt was convicted by a jury on October 7th, 1994, of the second-degree murder of Shannon. Doug and his lawyers appealed this um, on a number of grounds. However, the appeal was dismissed and Doug remained in prison. Fast forward to today, I found this case because it's recently been in the headlines. Just outside of Victoria, there was a building that was slated for demolition. And inside, they found a collection of newspaper clippings about Shannon. They closed the construction site, and the police went through everything to look for clues or possible links, maybe a clue to where her body could be. But this stash of newspaper clippings about Shannon didn't lead to any new information. After Doug's conviction, Shannon's parents hoped that the prospect of early parole could serve as incentive for him to tell them where her remains were. They also offered a $10,000 reward to anyone who could lead them to her body, but it didn't help. Shannon's father believes that Shannon was buried in the woods, and he can't understand why no one has stumbled across her yet. Yeah. Me too, because if it's close enough that the, the head could go be retrieved, it's not that far, you know. To this day, Shannon's body has not been found. Doug died in August 2014 at the age of 67. We may never know where Shannon's remains are. Shannon's family remembers her as fun, beautiful, and a good worker. Today, their lives are busy with their children and their grandchildren. Shannon's son is working and doing well. He has children of his own. Shannon's father said, Losing Shannon was terrible, but life's a bitch and then you go on. She's gone, but not forgotten. Dark. Dang. Okay, well, that was wild. Um... Today, we'd like to draw attention to the Victoria Women's Transition House Society, and you can find them at transitionhouse.net. They provide a safe space for women fleeing domestic violence, and you can help make safety plans and offer counseling. Is there a resource like this available in your community? Check it out, and please, if you can, donate and support, perhaps in Shannon's name. Please remember, leaving a relationship is the most dangerous time. Take care. Sorry to love you and leave you. Bye-bye. <laughs> what is... Ah, uh, yeah, it was a body sound like. <laughs> I feel like it would sound soft. Ew. Yeah. Wait, my nose? <gasps> Ooh. Should we do that again? Okay, just say, and this is... Redo, and this is... Sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and this is... Sorry. Sorry. Oh! <laughs> Can you say it? And I'll jump in. And this is. Yeah, like that. Okay. And this is? Sorry. Sorry. Murder. <laughs> <laughs>